Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. The Get Rich Slow Club podcast is a collaboration between Tash Etchman from Tash Invest and Anna Christina from Perla. The Get Rich Slow Club acknowledges the traditional custodians of the land we record on. From coast to coast, across land, waters, and communities, we pay our respects to elders past, present, and emerging. Any advice is general and does not consider your financial situation, needs, or objectives, so consider whether it's appropriate for you. Welcome to the Get Rich Slow Club podcast, where we take you from beginner to confident investor, where we can teach you everything you need to know about investing. So come get rich slow with us. Emma Edwards founded The Broke Generation in 2018 as a destination to help more people get good with money. Having undertaken graduate studies in financial psychology and behavior, Emma teaches the foundational habits, beliefs, and behaviors you need to build a positive relationship with money and make effective money management part of your lifestyle. She hosts the Broke Generation podcast and the Broke Business podcast. I love this episode because we went deep into money psychology and behaviors. There's so many great takeaways. We're super excited to have Emma from the Broke Generation here today. But before we get into everything, let's do our money wins and money losses. Anna, do you want to start? Oh, mine's just a really simple one. I had something from Bunnings. It was a safe that I needed to return because it was too small. You know, like a safe that you oh. put your What are you putting in? in your safe? Well, I wanted to put my passports and uh, my citizenship certificate and just like a couple valuable things in case anything were to happen. What if we weren't home that it was all kind of put away? Um, but actually, my Australian citizenship doesn't fit in it. Oh, it's not an A4 safe. What the heck? Oh. How weird. So anyhow, I went to go bring it back to Bunnings, but I had no receipt. And I was like, oh, will they take it? But they did. And I, I got a little gift, a store credit. So I have to just remember to use it. But I'm glad that they took it back because I was like, what am I going to do with this? I can't even put my citizenship. What defeats the purpose? So it's, um, yeah. So they I don't, don't have a larger safe. safe. They do, but they're really expensive. They're like $300, $400. And this How one was, was like yours? a $75 one. Wow. It was the one that the Barefoot Investor suggested. Oh, but so, it only fits the passport. 
yeah, it doesn't, you I know. I fancy a safe because yeah. I, I love a hotel safe. Yeah. As Tash knows. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, they're, you know, what what if something happens, right? Right. What if your house catches on fire? Yes. What if, you Guess know. what Emma put in the safe what, last week? What did you put in the safe? Pringles. <laughs> <laughs> Not even stacked chips. Yeah, they were. Yeah. Or, uh, I don't buy branded Pringles. You buy the half price stacked chips. Uh, $2.30. Those bad boys. Those are my engagement rings. All the essentials. Amazing. Amazing. That's important, right? <laughs> yeah. The sack chips wouldn't have fit. No, That's bigger no. than passport size. Yeah, probably. Oh, well, it wouldn't. Yeah. <laughs> How could the barefoot investor endorse this? He obviously doesn't have a Australian citizen. He's <laughs> born here. Um, what about what about you? What's your uh, money win or loss? My money win is I ended up getting the you know that email you get from um, shop back or cash rewards or whatever your preferred cash back provider when it's like your cash back is here because it's been you know 75,000 years since you had the transaction and I got two in there from booking.com that I just I didn't expect them to be that high I think I must have done them on bonus days without necessarily realizing that it was like a bonus day so I got like 60 bucks oh that's that like good two yes. transactions yeah. yeah that's very good yeah. Big money win. Yeah, big money win. I love those. Like, it, it's just free money. I was going to buy the yeah. thing anyways. It's just free money. Free money. So, yeah. And it comes so much, so late, especially yeah. if you've like booked the travel, but the travel's not for three months. And then you get it after you've traveled, like, you know, however many, however many months yeah. after. And you have to wait yeah. three months or something for something it? Like yeah. That. It's like a dividend payment. Yeah. You're like, oh, yeah, I forgot about you. It's literally higher than my dividends. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's good. Win. What about you, Tash? Um, Emma and I went to Daydream Island last week. Oh, it was jealous. very cool. Um, but my share of the food for the five days we were there was only $175. Five days? Pretty, yeah. So wow. breakfast was included. So that was just dinners and we bought kind of snacks and drinks and stuff. Pringles or not Pringles. No, no, we, we, we brought those with us. <laughs> That's really cheap. Mm. Well, we just fueled up at breakfast and then, yeah. you know, we don't really drink. So that saves a lot. We were sort of having, you know, maybe three soft drinks or something like Coke Zero or a coffee or whatever, you know. And dinner Money was good. Win. Yeah. Yeah, dinner was good. Awesome. Oh, I'm jealous. Yeah. I just, you yeah, know, I did another Aldi uh, shop yesterday. I wish, I wish my grocery shop was that much. Yeah. Oh, anyways. Well, let's kick it off. Um, you recently finished your graduate studies in financial psychology. Very cool. Congrats. Can you explain what financial psychology actually is? Yes. As everyone <laughs> says that. Everyone goes, ooh, wait, what's that? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, good question. It's um, financial. The field of financial psychology is emerging. Um, it's establishing more in the US. There's like some kind of key researchers that are doing a lot of the work on it, which is um, lucky enough to be lectured by them that run the program. Um, but essentially, it's sort of the study of psychology and behavior through a money lens. So why do we do the things we do with money? Why do we feel the way we feel about money? So a lot of it comes back to our early experiences, as does most of what we do in life, as I feel like we now know from psychology TikTok. Um, and it sort of looks at the way we've experienced money throughout our lives, how that informs beliefs, and then the behaviours that fall out of that alongside sort of cognitive biases, cognitive flaws that sit within the human brain uh, that make it more difficult for us to do the right thing with money. It's a similar to similar thing to the way we are with, you know, food or clothing. Ne we don't use neither, either of those things um, from a purely rational perspective. We have an emotional relationship with them. And then money is this because of its sort of um, prevalence in everything that we do, sort of runs as an undercurrent to every aspect of our lives. Um, that kind of sits in its own little bucket. And yeah, it just really looks at, at why we think and do the things we do with money. What are some examples of cognitive flaws? Things. Kind of like cognitive biases, but not really flaws? Yeah, sort of. Like it's all in the biases, flaws, buckets. Why do we do anything that's irrational can be sort of a, a cognitive flaw. So 
I guess one of the ones that most people are familiar with will be confirmation bias, for example, which can come up a lot uh, financially with spending or investing. You know, if you, um, you know, you think you want to buy something and then you see it everywhere because of confirmation bias because it's sitting in your brain, and you start seeing it. Um, or if you want to, if you're thinking about investing in something and then you you notice it more and you seem to, you know, all the reasons to invest in that will present themselves to you. Um, so that's sort of a more obvious one. I guess ones that are less commonly known, uh, there's outcome bias and attribution bias that kind of particularly in investing can, um, it's, we, we have a tendency to attribute positive outcomes to things that we have done and negative outcomes to things that are outside of us. So if we invest in something and it performs well, we think, oh, well, I made a really good decision. And so we might, that might inform future behaviors. Whereas if something goes wrong, we are particularly with, um, with markets, we are less likely to kind of go, oh, I made a bad decision. And that's, you know, why you might hold on stocks for longer and that kind of thing. Um, so, I mean, there's all kinds of ones and they can all come out in different ways. Um, you know, loss aversion is another one that, that comes about a lot, particularly talked about in markets, but then more in personal finance, I think that we, particularly now with like FOMO culture and traveling all over TikTok, and I think that we can be quite um, averse to losing out on the experiences we associate with um, more, you know, frivolous purchases, for example. You know, we don't want to, because we have that immediate gratification vein <laughs> pulsating at all times, we can feel loss averse to things that we say no to for our financial benefit as well. Um, it comes up in lots of different ways and there's different angles to see everything, but those are some examples. The science behind FOMO? Yes. <laughs> What's the difference between financial psychology and behavioral finance, which is another term that's thrown around? Yeah, I think, um, I think they have more, financial psychology sits more in the sort of emotions around money and the beliefs and the experiences and the way that we think and feel informing behavior in, in all senses. Behavioral finance tends to speak more to investor behavior. I think that's, I think it's really just got that badge from, uh, that's where a lot of the human behavior work has been focused on up to here. Um, because it's been, human behavior in markets has been studied for much longer than maybe some of the more emerging fields. Um, I think that they sit together in some ways, like a lot of the biases that have been researched and tested in investor behavior also apply to personal finance. It's just talked about more in an investing sense. Um, the psych financial psychology as a field is much more of that um, experiences forming beliefs, informing behaviors and the, sort of the concept of the the financial comfort zone that you've probably heard talked about with the, the lotto winners example, when you win the lottery and then a lot of people end up back where they started because of the comfort zone. Um, it sort of speaks to why that happens and the experiences that lead you to stay in or stretch your financial comfort zone. Where did you do your studies? I did it through a university in Omaha, Nebraska. Omaha, oh, yeah. where yeah. it is from. Yeah, yeah. I actually didn't realize that until half of the world went to that meeting. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that's interesting. Uh, Warren wasn't mentioned during the course. He didn't make an appearance. Um, but it's called Creighton University in their Hyder College of Business. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, because I've heard a lot of a lot of this uh, research has been done in the States and it makes mm. a lot of sense, right? Like it's yeah. a, a huge market, a huge amount of people. Back to financial comfort zones. Um, do you think people who win the lotto end up back where they started because of a financial comfort zone or because they don't have the skills to manage the money and they haven't developed them? Why does that happen? Um, obviously, everybody everybody's going to be different and everybody's got a different um, sort of experience on top of their identity as a lotto winner. And generally, lotto winners are offered financial advice. Um, so it shouldn't really happen as much as it does. Um, I don't know that if it's because they're not taking that or because it sort of collides, but usually what can happen, and it's not just lotto winners, it's also if you come into any sort of very rapid income growth, like a lot of professional sports people and things like that, um, 
again, there is often financial advice provided, but sometimes people don't take it or, um, you know, you can be told and told and told to do something and then not do it. Um, I think the, the comfort zone can come into play, um, sort of depending on various different experiences. I think it's, I think it's at play for all of us at some point. Just a lot of us never really have to contend with it that much because if you don't ever, have any external need to stretch it you know if you, if you don't ever yeah like if you don't ever um and it's, it's often easier to stretch it if you, your income goes up by you know 5k and then 10k the next year and then maybe you're eventually earning double but it's happened over a 20 year span that's for the everyday person that's really as far as it goes um and it still needs to be stretched don't get me wrong and you can often need to stretch it if the way that you earn changes like if you become self-employed or if you do get that step up that's maybe a level more than anyone in your family has ever earned before or that you've ever really really thought that you could possibly earn. I've experienced it myself becoming self-employed and that ceiling going away. Um, the opportunity to earn more money is one thing, but you have to feel able to earn it, hold it, manage it, etc. So I guess going back to what you actually asked, <laughs> tangents of my speciality, um, it can be, it's probably a combination of both things. Um, everyone's different. You don't know where they've come from and what their beliefs about money are. But I think that the greatest risk is when somebody comes into a windfall like a lotto win that is very substantial. Um, you know, I think if you win a million dollars or something, especially if we're talking in AUD, it's not actually that much money. Mm -hmm, yeah. <laughs> so I think maybe you might go with a bit more caution, but I think, you know, it can happen at any level. But I think particularly when there's that almost infinite nature to it where you win you know a hundred million in the euro lotteries or the us lotteries or whatever i think the perfect storm is a fractured relationship with money that may be unexplored because it's never been tested before i'm very happy with the status quo and also lack of literacy around investing and and things like that because i think for generally the everyday person that may not have um particularly advanced financial literacy a lot of the lotto conversation is on what you would buy and not how you would maximize the money. It's who you would give it to and what you would buy and where, where you would go. And it's very rarely thinking, oh, well, if I put that there, then I'll have that tax benefit or I'll have that investment vehicle or that will pay me this much or how much would I need to maintain the new lifestyle? I think we sort of, sort of think that we'll come into money, buy the things we need, give it to people and then just keep living our lives. But your identity shifts drastically. Mm -hmm. If your income goes up and you have a new lifestyle that you want to maintain and new standards and, you know, new insurances that come with all the things that you've bought and just, yeah, just a completely different lifestyle and that needs to be upheld. So I think it's, I think it's both. I think the perfect storm is an unexplored fractured relationship with money and a lack of financial literacy. And I think really them speaking together, which is what I kind of hope to contribute to the financial conversation. Um, and tying those things together, it's not just the knowledge and it's not just the psychology, it's both of those things. I think that's the the solution, I think, to that not happening. Yeah. It's really missed in like a lot of financial education because we can all Google how to save or how to invest, but there's reasons that people don't go and do it instantly and there's these kind of barriers there. Mm. A lot of it also aligns with like socioeconomic backgrounds, right? And and I think I've read a long time ago and I could you would probably know better than me, but a lot of people who potentially try to buy lottos are from a specific demographic, yep. right? And so if you have a lower financial literacy and if you understand that less so because this is your big ticket, right? Like it's it's a hope, it's a goal. If I if I win the lotto, it's going to change my life. It's very different for someone who's lower on the socioeconomic kind of space mm -hmm. than someone who is 
you know, has has a good income, have has investments, has a mortgage, has a house, and how they deal with those t- two things kind of aligns with exactly what you said, right? Like that financial literacy and understanding, and it talks more about this is going to save me or this is going to change my life as opposed to, well, this is a lot of money, but it doesn't change my lifestyle, right? Yeah. And and the the comfort zone as well, I think, can come from that socioeconomic category yeah. as well, because you, we all tend to exist within now, you know, if you're upper class, you tend to associate with upper class people. If yeah. you're lower socioeconomic status, you, you associate with other people and people in your family may be the same. Um, and the comfort zone can also come from the people and the experiences around you, because if you suddenly have an infinite amount of resources that nobody else in your family, in your social circle, in your, even your culture or your, your category, I suppose, however you would identify. If you're suddenly othered from that, mm-hmm. there can be almost like a primal need to reassociate with where you've come from. Um, because there can be even nothing on the, nothing on your part, but there can be, um, you know, scrutiny or family politics or whatever from other people around you that you've sort of left by, having this sudden upward mobility and this sudden influx of resources that that can sort of pull you back down to the comfort zone as well. Because if your identity does not accommodate that huge and drastic shift in wealth, that can be a really big clash as well. And that comes a lot, especially in the uh, the US environment with the, the research that's been done, that can bring a lot of the that can bring a lot of the comfort zone conversation up, um, especially when we're talking about the sports people as well. You know, you go off and you have this short but very, very lucrative career and then you return to where you've yeah, come yeah. from. How do you manage that money? <laughs> how, like, how do you manage the money? Yeah. How do you manage your new identity? You're suddenly this rich person that is alienated by where you've come from. And that stuff is so fascinating, right? Like hearing these mega stars claiming bankruptcy and you're like, how, how you, you've had millions and millions. And then you just realize that it's a completely different, you know, thought process that they're going through, right? This, this money is abundant. I can fulfill my lifestyle. And then how does that change once that no is no longer there? Mm-hmm. You have that, you've, you've lost your fame, your income, all of that. And, and how do you navigate that? Mm-hmm. I find people like, um, is it Jay Leno who have you ever, um, heard his story? He always kind of, he started comedy. He did the tonight show. Did you guys, or I'm not sure. Do you know who I'm talking about? No, I do, but I don't know the, I don't know anything, any of the about shows him. or anything yeah, like okay. that. So, um, I think it was the Tonight Show. But anyways, Jay Leno, he's a comedian and he kind of had a, his whole story was that he was doing bowling. Or he worked at a bowling alley and he did comedy on the side and he would anything that he was making from his side gig, he would invest. So he he's one of those rare cases that made a lot of money, but was putting money aside because that that those money habits that he had, that psychology that he had with money kind of grew with him as his income increased. And the thing is, if you don't have that as an athlete and you're making tons of money and no one's helping you navigate your finances, how, how much are you putting aside? How do your taxes work? What are you investing in? Are you just spending money on things? You're not going to be able to manage that with $100, with $100,000 or $100 million, right? Exactly. And that lifestyle component, comes up that when you lo- if if and when you lose it or there's any shift in this new kind of standard that you've established the fall is a lot 
there's a lot further yeah. to fall, if you know what I mean. I'm actually reading a novel at the moment, which is, it's totally not the point of the novel, but obviously I just read everything through a financial lens <laughs> and I'm like, so many money themes in here. It's called The Rise by Shari Lowe and Ross King. And it's like the story of three fictional um, characters that grew up in Scotland and they came from nothing and they went on to be like multi, multi, multi-millionaires in the like film production acting industry. And it's really interesting, the themes in that Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. About how they have all the money in the world, but there's all these other problems that they can't solve. And they're actually, there's, you know, a few threats to their sort of status. And there's just so much further to fall if you haven't, I guess, adjusted to where you are because you you adjust in the sense that the things that you want and your needs go up. Um, but if you haven't sort of, if your identity is still not really with that, that's when I think that you spend on all the stuff that you just don't need. And it almost becomes ironic because you can you can buy anything in the world, yeah. but you have so many problems that you can't fix with money. Yeah, I think yeah. they become even more abundant when money isn't the problem. I don't know. Interesting book though. Would give it a read. <laughs> Interesting. No more grandmas murdering people. No. <laughs> Not a, it's not a murder through. Well, I think there may be a murder somewhere in there, but okay, cool. we haven't got that far yet. No. <laughs> so what are some of the takeaways of someone who wants to navigate that? How do you how do you rejig your behavior and your ideas around money? Not right. necessarily for the lotto winners, just for everyday people yeah. as well. Yeah. For any lotto winners. <laughs> Here's your episode. Yeah. Is that your target market? Yeah, <laughs> yeah obviously. And, and that's, I think, where what's been really interesting about the growth of the financial psychology field is that it's gone now beyond a few scattered studies about why people who come into huge wealth inherited or won or whatever um, lose it all. I feel like that's where it was like a seed um, for a while. But now it's going on to explore just how everyday people interact with money. And the key thing is to explore the things that you think and feel about money by going all the way back to not just the way that you experienced it. This is a common mistake. We hear this a lot in the rags to riches stories of, you know, I um, came from nothing. I had a single mom and I uh, built my company and I ate super noodles under the desk at a WeWork and now I'm a millionaire and it's a rags to riches. I came from this and now I'm this. And the reason I'm like this is because I grew up poor. There is, there may be a shred of truth to it, but it's actually not what you experienced. It's the beliefs that you took from that experience. And it's why, I mean, Tash and I have talked about this a lot about how siblings can have completely different, they have the, you know, near enough the same upbringing. Obviously everybody's is unique and, and parents treat children differently and things. But in terms of socioeconomic status, if you're raised by the same parents in the same household, you've had the same experience. You are either 
poor or you were wealthy or you were somewhere in the middle. Um, but it's the beliefs that you took from that. So someone who grew up with very little, uh, using food stamps, um, budgeting to within half an inch of their lives or not doing so, but someone who grew up with very little may go on to think, I need to hold money really, really tightly because I don't want to go through that. Whereas other people develop a sense of learned, learned helplessness that they can't do anything with their money because money is just very difficult for people like them. Mm-hmm. And then they go on to go, and, and I personally experienced this. I, you know, I didn't grow up in poverty by any stretch, but we didn't have money was difficult. We didn't have a lot of it. We didn't have, you know, properties or holiday homes, investments, or, um, you know, I was raised by a single mum. So there was only one income and, you know, all the stuff that comes with that. But I often wondered before I sort of worked out a lot of my stuff out, why am I not really good with money? Why am I not really frugal? Because I don't want that either. Mm-hmm. But why did I not become one of those people that didn't grow up with much and wanted? to save all my money. But it's because I just took different beliefs from that. I took different beliefs. I took beliefs that, um, oh, you'll always, you'll always scratch together the money somehow because you always have done. So I'll always find the money. I can always make more money. I was working. I used to work, 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 work so much just to be scattered with my money. But when I needed more, I just pick up extra shifts and there it was. And it was uncomfortable, but it was a comfort zone in that that's what I was familiar with. Um, so to stop talking about myself for a brief moment. Sorry for my uh, narcissism there. Um, it's all about disconnecting your experience from what's happening and focusing on that middle piece, which is the beliefs, because your beliefs inform your behaviours. So really common beliefs are things like, if I work hard, I'll be okay. Yeah, It works to yeah. a certain degree. And sometimes our beliefs are are healthy and they, and they make sense and they work for the certain situation. When I was a waitress and I was working while at uni, that belief that I'd always find more money wasn't really causing me any problems. But then as you get older and, you know, overtime doesn't exist really in the corporate world. Um, and you can't earn more money anymore and you have to work with what you've got and you can't just keep scraping by, scraping by. And when you are escalating that, those same financial patterns up into higher and higher incomes and there is more gap that you could do more with that belief doesn't work for you anymore and you need to create a new one. A lot of people have beliefs around what it means to have disposable income or do to have spare money, um, that it makes them a bad person or it makes them greedy or to have, you know, higher wants than somebody else. Uh, like Anna, you might relate to this too about, uh, you know, being from overseas. I need to be able to go back home to visit my friends and family. Yeah. I need to spend a lot more on travel than other people, which means I need to earn a lot more than yeah, other yeah. people. But I've had to grapple a lot with like, well, what does it say about me if $70,000 a year isn't enough? Because once I dreamed of earning $70,000 a year. Yeah. And then I earn it and I go, well, actually, to be able to go home, I need to spend probably ten, fifteen thousand on travel more than someone else who doesn't need to go home. And then if I want a holiday for myself on top of that, dare I want that? God, you know, then there's, you know, we keep ourselves into these sort of boxes that make it harder to hold on to money. And, and it often comes back to experiences, a lot of stuff around, you know, what your parents' relationship was like, if there's any money stuff there, like money being you know, uh, divorce causing a lot of money problems for my family. The way that I view my financial relationship with my husband is very different to the way he views it as his parents have had a very a healthy financial relationship. So I think thinking about your experience and not just that, but what you believed and how it might relate to anything that feels remotely sticky with money, whether it's earning a lot more or your financial behaviors, like your spending saving behaviors. Maybe you find it really easy to save, but not easy to invest. Maybe you find it really hard to save and invest. There's, there's a belief sitting there somewhere, uh, that, will make that behavior make perfect sense. Every irrational behavior makes perfect sense when you find out the belief that sits behind it. 
It's almost like a belief on a belief on a belief. Like yes. you, you have to dig very deep to kind of figure it out because it's not just about your upbringing, but mm. it's also what you've taken from that upbringing and then how you've applied it to your life and how other things have happened to your life and how that continues to impact you, right? Yeah. And it's not just, you know, the a lot of our money, core money beliefs form by the age of six just because of yeah. our brain development. Um, but it's not just those things. Um any there's there's uh, the researchers call them financial flashpoints. Any financial experience that happens in your life, whether it's COVID or the GFC or your parents divorcing or your mum getting made redundant, or it can be as little as you having that two thousand dollars saved up for a trip and having to spend it on something your family needs or something. Anything that brings up some stuff through at any point in your life can trip can contribute to those beliefs and i think the hardest thing to understand with those beliefs is that they can be contradictory and that's what makes it really confusing um because you can want to have lots of money but also have a fear of success and it doesn't make any sense and you can feel deserving of money but also completely not deserving of money at the same time um and unpacking the kind of stories that sit behind those can help you sort of unpack your behavior. And when you understand your behavior, it's easier to change it. So how deep do you go into psychoanalyzing yeah. yourself? Like, because I, I mean, I feel the same way, right? Like I look back at some of my upbringing and it's like, why did I feel this? Why did I feel that I was undeserving of this? Or, you know, that money was abundant or that it wasn't or that I want to make more money, but I don't want to be seen as a capitalist, like all, all of these conflicting things for myself. And it's like, you can go so deep. How deep do you go? So if you're taking this, if, if you're studying this field, how deep do you go in yourself? And it, like, cause I know I would, like, I'm, I'm, I'm sure anyone would, right? You're learning these new concepts or these ways of unpacking your money relationship. And then you have to think of yourself. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we, to understand the material, a lot of the exercises that we have to do, we have to do on ourselves as well and, and unpack our own beliefs and everyone shares it in like a discussion group. It's very interesting. Um, especially hearing from people that are really different stages of life from you or a lot of people that took the course, um, in, in my cohort anyway, were financial planners and the backgrounds that they have come from, which is probably much higher on a socioeconomic scale than me and thinking about the beliefs that they have a lot around work and, a lot from men as well, what it means to provide for your family and the, you know, archaic patriarchal beliefs that they might have grown up around. Like that comes into play a lot as well. That stuff is embedded. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, in terms of depth, it's the same with anything, right? You can, you know, childhood experiences, money aside, we can go very, very deep and explain all of our behavior to within half an inch of its life. Two things to say. I think the first thing is it can be difficult because it's, you're exploring your experience and your behavior And for some people, it's as simple as uncovering that there's a belief like I'll always make more money when I realize that that's why I would justify a lot of things I would spend money on because I can just sabotage and I'll fix it later. And I would put myself through that, uh, that experience over and over again for things like that or the working really hard, um, makes me more money or one that my lecturer talked about that he experienced was that he realized he, he kept trying to contribute money to his retirement fund, like a 401k or whatever it's called in the UK and in the US, um, but he wasn't doing it. He knew that he had to and he wasn't doing it. And he had untangled the fact that he actually had a really toxic relationship with the concept of retirement because it felt like quitting. Oh, and that's that, an interesting one. Yeah, because you quit work. Yeah. And he was like, well, I don't want to do that. And he was sort of like defiantly not doing it. And he was that was an example of when he realized that belief, that was enough to empower him to not immediately, you can't change your behavior immediately, but that was enough to help him move forward. Some beliefs and some experiences can sit in the trauma 
category. Yeah, for sure. Um, and that's something that needs to be addressed with a mental health professional. It's not something I can fix for you on a podcast. But I think that I think with money stuff and just our brains in general, particularly when it's changing financial behavior and trying to get better financial outcomes, this belief and behavior stuff is not as simple as learning how to buy a stock and buying it and you're done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You won't just find out the belief and go, I'm fixed. I'm ready. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's 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 ongoing. And like I said, I've experienced some belief stuff around my changing earning experience, like being self-employed. I'm doing more work now, sort of like chapter two in my money revolution, shall we say. And I think it will continue to do so. It can change when you marry. It can change if you divorce. It can change when you change your identity as a parent or when you lose a parent and you're on your own or, you know, anything that really rocks the boat in your life and or in your finances can change it. So I think accepting that it's an ongoing thing and it's not like learning how to open a savings account or open an investment. It's not like a one and done thing. It's more of a changing perspective of your financial behavior and accepting that when you are looking at your finances and thinking that, oh, maybe I can change some things with this, considering that element as well. Because it doesn't replace literacy and the practical knowledge. It sits alongside it. So sometimes you need to learn something new and sometimes you need to delve deeper into why you're doing something and uncovering patterns um, and usually a bit of both. <laughs> what some practical ways people can get started with that? Do you advocate for journaling or sitting down and reflecting every week? Mm. Um, I think journaling, I know it's a really basic suggestion, but it is really helpful because it helps, especially in relatively unexplored fields like finance. It's probably for most people the first way, the first time that they'll have thought about money in that way. Um, and I think bringing a bit of that into however you manage your money, whether it's like a monthly review or something like that. Um, I have like a weekly and a quarterly sort of spending review template that I have on Notion and I have a physical copy as well. Uh, you can purchase that if you would like. <laughs> Link in the show notes. Um, which sort of prompts you to look at not just your thoughts and feelings around money in isolation, but looking at what's happening in your bank accounts and in your savings accounts and if you're an investor in your investing behavior as well. Um, and mirroring that up with, marrying that up, sorry, with the way that you feel. Um, it can start much more sort of surface level in terms of what did I spend this month and what else was going on for me this month? It helps you sort of connect to when I'm feeling this way about my job here's this spending behavior. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. And I think starting with that much more um, top level stuff of I feel this, so I do this, that can start to help you go a bit further down and move further on from I did this yesterday because of this and kind of think I do this more broadly and have done this for my whole life with money because of this. And that's sort of how it went for me. I know this was before I was even studying it, but I started working out that when I felt bad about the way I looked and my body, which had been a continuing theme for me through my teens and and into my early 20s, late 20s, (laughs) today. (laughs) When I felt like that, I would spend money on clothes, accessories, anything image enhancing. And that was sort of the beginning of understanding how my emotions inform my behavior. From there, I went further down to thinking more about the money side of it. When I am making progress and then I sabotage, what are the thoughts that are coming up with that? This is a pattern that I'm doing regularly. What's the deeper, sort of the bigger rather than the top level? What's the next level down from that? And then you can sort of go the other way and think, well, what were my parents both like with money? What 
Are the behaviours I've picked up from them? What are the ones I've rebelled against? If they've told you anything about they, the way they were brought up with money, I don't have huge visibility over this and it's difficult now that I don't have any grandparents left. Um, but I do remember that my mom always said that my grandparents were really, really frugal and often unnecessarily frugal. Like they had, my grandfather had an all right job, um, but they were never allowed anything brand name. They were always, always scrimping. They always had to go like off peak to things so that the parking was cheaper or whatever. And she really rebelled against that. And I've noticed that I've in some ways picked up some of those things. So that can be a, a good starter as well, like thinking about the things that you copied and the things that you rebelled against, or if you sit somewhere in between and working back up to what those behaviours are. That's really interesting. I was thinking about my dad. He hates coupons and never wants to use a coupon. Mm. He's like, oh, wait, we don't, we don't need coupons. My mum's a bit like that. Yeah, my grandparents were very frugal when he was growing mm. up. So now he's like, no, anti-coupon. Yeah. I don't need a coupon. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting. Yeah. It's really, um, I think those things as well and thinking about how people deal with adversity, financial or otherwise. I tell the story a few times, um, but I remember the weekend that my mum told me that my dad was leaving because he'd been having an affair. She bought me a hair crimper, which Ooh. in 2001 was still my beating heart. <laughs> but that's how I learned. And not just that, but this was a repeating pattern. When something bad's happened, I can buy something you and I'll feel gift. better. Yeah. Mm. yeah. And that's one of those flashpoints rather than the belief thing. That's one of those flashpoints that's informed a pattern of behavior. Um, so thinking about anything major that comes to the surface as well. And like I said, it's not as quick as one and done. Like it's, you, you're not going to think, oh, immediately. Yes. The crimpers, like that took me a while to come to. Um, probably because can- you haven't used one in ages. <laughs> Look, it's probably coming around again. If TikTok keeps yeah, yeah, me true. up with the trends. No. That relic. Will be oh back. gosh. Um, but yeah, it's, it's not particularly sexy work because because it's not like do this and you'll make a hundred thousand dollars. Um, but I think that it's been probably one of the most significant changes to not only what changed my finances from being a hot dumpster fire to actually having savings in the bank, but my growing confidence that I can manage my money throughout my lifetime. Um, weathering the adversities of adulthood, you know, you know, realizing you're on your own now. Um, tackling, you know, having to support parents financially and things like that, thinking about if you want to have a family, thinking about, you know, battling things like health concerns that come up that cost money, like weathering the storms of life financially. Those things have helped me through that a lot because we create stories around the experiences that we have based on the information that we have. Um, And when you can make sense of those stories and work out what's true and what's not, it's invariably going to improve your relationship with the financial aspect of your life. Well, that was lots of fun. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Um, you have two very cool podcasts. What are they? I do have two cool podcasts. Thank you. Uh, my main show is the Broke Generation podcast. It's been running for a couple of years now. So there is a juicy lots of episodes to dive into about uh, the emotional, psychological, behavioral side of money, building a positive relationship with it and feeling good about it. And my new show, which is season two is coming soon, is called Broke Business, which is all of those things, but for business owners. So why money is so complicated when you work for yourself. I really liked your 30 things when you turned 30 episodes. They were cool. Oh, 32. 32? 32 things I've learned by 32. Yeah. 32 so many things though. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I'm going to do such a cool episode. And I got to like 17 and was like, oh no. I've learned enough. <laughs> got there in the end. Yeah. <laughs> 
And where can everyone find you on social media? They can find me at the dot broke generation because some derelict account is still parked on the broke generation oh, with no, no dot. Uh, but I'm there on Instagram and very occasionally I will grace you on TikTok. Yes, there's some fun TikToks. <laughs> Every now and again when I get sort of a hunger to be among the kids and then I'm like, oh no, wait, I hate this. No. <laughs> you can find me there. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for joining us. If you found this episode helpful, please rate us five stars, write a review, or share with a friend. If you're new to investing, make sure to listen to our first 10 episodes. Follow us at Get Rich Slow Club or Tash at Tash Invest or me at Anna Christina. This show was brought to you by Natasha Edgman, who is an authorized representative, 12-99881 of Guideway Financial Services, AFSL 420367 and Perla, who is an authorised representative, 1281540, of Sanlam Private Wealth, AFSL 337927. Knowledge is power, especially when it comes to investing. So make sure you check out our financial services guides and read the product disclosure statement and target market determination for any investments you're considering. See our show notes for more info. 